Hey, Nikki. Hey, Selena. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sweet Tea and TV. Hey, y'all. And welcome to the season four special episode. Are y'all ready for a little Operation Hell's Fury? What? <laughs> what happened? Oh, man. We're ready. Ah, that's right. You spoke. <laughs> And we listened. This is all off the cuff, guys. Just I can't look you in the eyes while you say this. <laughs> we presented you with six movies, and you chose the 1996 classic, The First Wives Club, starring Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, and Diane Keaton. So that's right. Hell's Fury was not a threat. It's from the movie. <laughs> it's not scary. It's funny. <clears throat> this is a movie about friendship. Love, getting older, and getting even. Well, or not even, but everything, we'll get into it. In some ways, this will feel like a Designing Women episode breakdown where we'll talk about general thoughts, strays, and references, what we liked and didn't. Of course, we'll also have to talk about some movie trivia. And in our second part of the episode, because there's so much, we're just going to put it in two parts. We're going to talk about... Casting and controversies. Mm. So come back mm. with a, Ooh, does that get you? <laughs> does that casting and controversies get you? <laughs> Anyways, but before we get into our thoughts on rewatch, let's orient ourselves to 1996, shall we? Well, just the movie, not the whole year. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what? I got time for that. Um, so the synopsis is, reunited by death of a college friend, three divorced women seek revenge on the husbands who left them for younger women. In addition to the main cast, it starred Maggie Smith, rocking an American accent, Marcia Gay Harden, Rob Reiner, Victor Garber, Stephen Collins, Bronson Pinchot, <clears throat> Dan Hedaya, and Sarah Jessica Parker. It was written by Robert Harling, as in Still Magnolias, who we discussed at length back in episode 14, and also Olivia Goldsmith, who wrote the book the movie is based on in 1992. Goldsmith died in 2004. It's directed by Hugh Wilson and produced by Scott Rudin. More to come on him, probably in part two, methinks. It was a bona fide hit, bringing in $105 million during its run. That's $204 million today. And it was the 10th highest grossing film of 1996. With those basics in mind, are you ready to jump into the big stuff? I'm ready. Okay. So... <sighs> Take it away, Nikki. <clears throat> Let's start with our traditional general thoughts, stray observations, and we can add in, if you have them, memories of the movie, of the time around the movie, anything you want to share. Okay. If you have them. If you have them. If you have I them. I tend not to have the memories. I think, though, we can both go ahead and just say, before we jump into generals. Um, can we? <laughs> Let me not check my notes. Stay on. Let me check my notes. No, I was just going to say that this is a rewatch for both of yeah. us. This wasn't an introduction to new content as it has been in previ some previous special episodes. One day we will introduce you to Doc Hollywood. I can't seem to get the people to vote with me, but that is a classic 80s movie. It's your One, show, Michael Nikki. J. Fox. It might be early 90s. 90. Um, 90, I think. It also is based in South Carolina, a small town in South Carolina. So it fits right within our wheelhouse of this here at podcast. I was really torn between all of these movies. It was hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a hard, it was a hard choice for yeah. the peoples to make. It was a sweet TNTV choice, if you will. Yeah. I, not to honestly, be confused with Sophie's. I would not to, 
not quite a Sophie's Choice, no. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I was really torn because, and I will tell you though, as it got down to it, as much as I love Thelma and Louise, I didn't know I was emotionally prepared for it. Oh, so I was uh-huh. glad that, even though this movie doesn't exactly start off light, I was glad that we got something that was um, uh, so uh, lighthearted in tone when you look at the whole thing, or maybe you don't think that we'll just have to get in these I'm really glad you brought that up. That actually okay. is my very first general thought. It sounds like you need to start us off then. I had forgotten how dark the opening was, yeah. like how dark the storyline with Cynthia is yeah. that brings you into it. Cause this is a PG movie. I don't know if you realize that I realized it when I was like clicking play or something. Yeah. So it's kind of like, I wouldn't say light cause it's all about revenge, but it's also not like deathy. And the yeah. beginning is very deathy. Yeah. Um, the friend, so I hope people are watching this. If we're going to talk about it, I hope people are watching it or have watched it. But as a reminder for anyone who hasn't. Oh, there's a spoilers abound here. Cynthia jumps off a building and it is just, it's sad. It's sad. It's really sad. Is and it, I had forgotten that. Well, because you also open, we get the flashback of them as friends. As friends in college. In college yeah. I have to tell you, so I think when you showed up today, that makes it sound like you I just showed up in your life. Like you finally showed up. No, but when you got here today, I was on my third watch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I did one for notes, one for fun. Fun-sies. And then, yeah. And then one to get the spirit this morning. And, um, I, the more I watch it, I think the more it starts to make me think about friendship and where I am in my life. And, and there are definitely parts that like, I wouldn't have normally cried at that now I think mm. just like, with a let's just say I'm a little more well seasoned than I used to be, and it really got me. Um, my first general thought, though, is actually, can we just take a minute to acknowledge how exceptional it was to have a movie in 1996 with an all female cast, mm-hmm. all 50 years old? Now they're not playing 50 in the show, but they tur- they turned 50 like during the production, mm. and all three of them did. Yeah, and that's actually, um, I spoiled a trivia. I was going to say, that feels trivia adjacent. Well, we might come back to it and pretend I didn't say it. But they they were all playing 45 or 46 years old. Uh, But still, all-female cast, all hovering around 50. It's still the exception. It's not the rule today, but it was totally unheard of then. It really makes me think Robert Harling is on to something because it's it's Steel Magnolias in a way, right? Because that was not a particularly young female-driven cast. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't know enough about movies to know how this happens. Is it possible that Olivia Goldsmith is like, hey, he, this is a person who knows how to write women and women mm. of a certain age? Mm-hmm. That I don't know. Um, I wanted to share a couple of things, though, on that general thought of this being exceptional. So Goldie Hawn told the press years later that all three ladies took, leading ladies, took a cut in their salary because basically the studio didn't believe that women carrying a movie would actually work. Right. Uh, She and Midler have spoken out about the sequel that never was. It's been attributed to these lowball offers that the studios assumed that, you know, they would take. And they also were making this assumption that the movie's success was a fluke. Um, So... And then just to kind of, I want to give this as an example of like how what was happening in the movie may have been somewhat reflective in a way of what was happening in real life. I read this Medium article published around the 25th anniversary of the movie's release, and it pointed out that Han, Keaton, and Midler 
They're all three very iconic Hollywood stars at that time who in the mid nineties, despite their impressive accolades, despite their like resumes that are probably the length of their bodies, they were no longer able to get these same high profile roles largely due to their age. Right. And so it's just so interesting how one feeds the other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I also just wonder like, what is the calculus behind that thought that women driven movies can't succeed? What is the calculus behind similar thought that like a movie driven by a minority lead cast can't succeed? What is that calculus? How are they figuring that out? Because I don't know that that's true. And I think you have movies like First Wives Club. We talked in the last episode because I recently saw Barbie. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of movies intended for women that do really well. Bridesmaids. Right. Probably like one of the most right. iconic in the last decade plus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously the answer. Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde too. Patriarchy. Is Patriarchy. A that's the answer. Um, but and, it's just, they speak with such authority that it won't do well. Yeah. And I think some of it's like a misunderstanding. It's like when we've talked about like um, the critical reception of designing women and it was all really crappy. And then we're like, oh, these are all men. Right. You know, and I'm not saying that there weren't some criticisms that were, weren't accurate of the pilot episode, but what I am saying is when you read what some of those criticisms are, you're like, oh, you just don't understand women. Right. And that feels like two different things. You know, I think something else that struck me, and I don't know, I, I can't remember if you and I talked about this or not, like off air, but before re-watching the movie, I was trying to think back on the memory piece of all of this, and I was thinking, okay, I'm 38 years old. How strange is it that at 11, 12, and 13 years old, this was a movie I watched countless times. Yeah. A movie about 50-year-old divorcees. You know, and it's not just me, but like it was me and several of my friends, and we watched it together all the I time. I watched it too. I was over in my, my part of the woods watching it Isn't and that enjoying it. Fascinating. Yeah. So I started like thinking about it a little bit, and then it hit me. And I'm not saying like this isn't a hot take, and it's not, and maybe this is like a Captain Obvious moment for everyone else, but I guess I'd never really thought about it before. We just weren't flush with these female driven movies then. Mm. And what, it doesn't matter what age you are. So I did a little exercise and I pulled um, the top 50 movies from 1990 to 1995. The top 50, okay? And here's what I found. Out of 300 movies across those years, 19 were ones I consider female-driven. That's mm -hmm. 6%. Mm -hmm. A couple of notable notes, three of the 19 were Disney princess movies, and one of those was a re-release of Snow White. Mm. I could tear every single one of those up if I wanted to, mm. about being maybe the best female-driven movie. And then there were zero female-driven movies in the top 50 for 1994. Mm. 50. 50. If you look at the top 10 highest-grossing films for each year from 90 to 95, only one. Whoopi Goldberg. Sister Act. Sister Act. That's a really good movie. It is a really good movie. <laughs> really good movie. And really one good. of the rare exceptions where the sequel also was very good. Right. I like Sister Act. Yeah. That was not what you brought that up for. No, it's not. But I mean, who doesn't want to hear Lauren Hill sing? Well, I think that the point you're making about like us being young and the movie still resonating with us also feeds into my next general reaction for a different reason. Okay. 
This movie, if I think about it, has always made me feel empowered, even if I couldn't put a word to that. When they get to the end and they're all three singing You Don't Own Me, like as a 13-year-old and as a 37-year-old, the idea of being my own person and being able to control myself and my future and what I want to do, it hits hard. Again, whether you're 13 or 37. And so then watching three beautiful, smart, funny women sing that and like go off into the night sky with their singing. It's just, it's really hits you. They have each other. They have and each other. And they're having such a good time. They came out on top with their ex-husbands. Yeah, it just, it was, it's just an empowering movie. Yeah. It's just empowering. Yeah, and they didn't give in to the trope of like every single person getting back with their husband. Right. You get one, one who's headed that direction. But yeah, I really appreciate that. And they left hints all along the way. That they were getting back together. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, there's just more. Um, I hadn't really noticed it before because it was in some of the um, scenes where they're fighting with each other. But they're like, you just, all you care about, all you talk about is Morty, Morty, Morty or something like oh, that. Oh. And I was like, oh, we're, we we did lay some groundwork here. Okay. It's not happening out of nowhere. Yeah. Can I ask you a vague question? Yeah, sure. It's open-ended. Maybe vague's not the right word. Okay. I don't know. Let's see. Was there a storyline or a revenge plot? that resonates the most with you? Oh, what a great question. Not necessarily, obviously, because you've ever had to get revenge on Casey, though no hate if you had. Um, but just is there a character story you see yourself in? It resonates with me personally. And I'll give you some background. Yeah. So an interview I read with Olivia Goldsmith, who you mentioned earlier wrote the book, mm-hmm. um, said that she writes a lot, or at the, had written a lot from an archetypical perspective, okay. meaning she identifies a central theme for her stories, then creates characters who are archetypes who support that theme so she wanted like the beautiful bombshell and she wanted the middle of the road housewife and she wanted the simpering um people pleaser and so I just wondered if there's any one character that resonates for you or a line storyline well okay so I have two different thoughts that popped in my head so I'll share them both one is that there was something to me that was always just really satisfying about in terms of revenge about um Goldie Hawn and her husband yes mine was the same yep. yeah there was something about the oh just take the whole dollar yeah I've always loved that taking everything away he seems the most upset like he cries when he writes the check at the end there's something about that that his and Goldie Hawn let this be a warning to you Casey I like it when men cry (laughs) she um also had two things had had so much trouble building a case against him so it's very satisfying when she found the perfect thing but also her character because she was a movie star because she was in all these like you identify with that yes no I was gonna say (laughs) they um the movie she was in sounded like sexy bombshell movies and so you sort of get this perception that she's not a deep thinker she's not like super strategic and when all of that came together oh it felt good I really liked that yeah but if I was good like the caricature the caricature that I most identify with is probably Ben Midler yeah she's mouthy yeah I'm mouthy (laughs) we have that in common sarcastic and I think I could see that I think that's true I think that um you are answering this other question as well, yes? Yes. I I, th- I went back and forth because I'm torn between Bette Midler's character and Annie. Bette Midler's character because um, 
She loves her son so much. He's the center of her entire universe. Um, I think that that's how I would love if if I ever had to get divorced. That's how I'd love to handle it. Like she keeps putting her son first and yeah. keeps trying to like come together for him. She's also a little bit goofy and silly. She's also just like a typical woman. She has like weight concerns and she's worried about her body. Like a lot of those things resonate with me. But I also a little bit identify with some of Annie. Like I'm not as doting as she is, like taking care of everybody. Um, we just talked about this off mic, but I am familiar with like how self-conscious she is, how she struggles to be straightforward and stand by what she wants. I, I identify with that too. I also like to think I'm a hype girl for my friends. Like the way mm. she was constantly the person's like, you haven't aged a day. You look just like you did when we were young or you have such a good sense of humor, you know? Yeah. So Okay. I like that. I'm glad you asked that question because I I uh, started to add something like that and I forgot. So good job. <laughs> <laughs> what other generals do you have? That's I, that was all my generals. Okay. Um. So on strays, I'll start by just saying mm-hmm. the opening looks like really 90s. The cr- opening credits. It looks very clueless. Love that pop art. Like hot stuff. pink. Yeah, like hot pinks and like the pictures popping up and the illustrations and it just the first thing that came to mind was clueless, which also has Dan. Hidea. Yep, sure does. And can't get it out of my head now. Just the next year, too. Or Clueless is the year right. before. Yeah. yeah. So I, um, how those words land with you in 2023? Wait, wait, which words? Over the opening to the song and the opening Oh, sequence. I don't know what you're talking about. It's a bit, I can't remember exactly. It's something like, make sure you don't ever let your husband leave while you still have curlers in your oh. hair. Oh, like, you know, don't think he's not going to just run around on you. It's basically. Uh, I wonder where they pulled those from because you know they came from somewhere. That song? I'm it's, sure that was probably just a big song in the 60s. No, no, it was. Oh, okay. Was it lyrics of the song? Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a really cool opening sequence. I like it because it's very pop. Well, darn, now I'm going to have to watch it. I was so distracted by the like just brightness of it all yeah. and I just could not get past clueless in my head definitely go back so while you were song. looking at the lyrics and listening to the song I was googling whether anybody from clueless like um Amy Heckerling or anything like that was involved with this movie because oh. I was like man this but feels the, the same no not as far as I could find um yeah I do miss that kind of like cartoony entrance that you would sometimes get in 90s movies though that was yeah. nice I also had forgotten who Duarto was, oh, uh-huh. the worst interior de- decorator in New York City. <laughs> Top I'd 10 worst. <laughs> yeah. I had just totally forgotten that. Yeah. Uh, the, my very first stray is like something I missed when I was younger. I mean, I definitely remember hearing the line. I just don't think it lands the same when you're 11. But when they're sitting down with the lawyers, Elise and Bill, mm-hmm. and the lawyer, his lawyer is running through all of her movies and says that... <laughs> Her favorite is Animal Nature, in which she played a sensuous veterinarian. I laugh so hard at that, just because it's so ridiculous, and also because, like, you know some version of that movie exists, and it's just... But is it a porno? Because I just kept feeling like they were all pornos. I think it's more probably in the basic instinct type of movie. So, like, a sexual thriller, if you will, which were really hot in the 90s, so... There you go. In multiple ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel hot just thinking about it, I guess. <laughs> um, I realized on rewatch that there are a ton of lines in this movie that live rent-free in my head. Uh-oh, like what? Well, it's very similar to Still Magnolias, you know. Um, okay, so, Mom, I'm a lesbian, but don't tell Daddy. I want to wait 
for a good time, like Father's Day or Christmas morning. And I feel like just in terms of my type of revenge, <laughs> that's my brand. That feels right for you. Yes. Um, there are only three ages for women in Hollywood, babe, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy. And right now, I want to be young. I want to be science fiction young. Don't shame me in the synagogue. I say that. which is weird since I'm not Jewish (laughs) but it definitely comes from this movie and I think that I just walked it back how that's possible two two things one I found an article maybe like Cosmo or Variety something like that where the author put out like 50 of their favorite 50 not 50 like 20 of their favorite quotes from this movie Uh maybe I should go back and dig that up and put that in the show notes because uh, yes, I think some of your favorites are going to be on there. Uh-huh. The other one I liked was Annie's mother. She was a fascinating character to me. And she said, you're married. You have a daughter. You don't need self-esteem. And I feel like that just speaks to a certain mindset. She is a, if, if the right, if she appears in the book. She, she does. Or if she does. If she does, uh-huh. she is also a perfect archetype. Mm-hmm. So um, I had two more lines that also live rent free in my head. Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend. Hold on, excuse me. Sean Connery is Monique's boyfriend. He's 300 years old, but he's still a stud. And aren't you frustrated? You climb and you, and you climb, climb and you get nowhere. nowhere. Which is exactly how I feel about the freestanding machines. That Midler is so great. She is. The last stray that I had was that I just, going back to Duarto, because he just blew my mind. I'd forgotten that character altogether. Girls, girls. I had forgotten that character. Bronson Pinchot is like just a delight. And then I think I had forgotten that Bette Midler's character works for him. And so what surprised me was when um, her ex-husband allows him to come in to decorate the place wouldn't he have made a connection between him and Brenda? I don't think so because I, you know, it's insinuated that she was a housewife. So mm. my guess is she had to get this She had job to get a job. After the divorce, yeah. Okay. That's my guess. Okay. If you wanted to ask me if I felt like I could probably find some plot holes in the story, yeah, I could for do that sure. too. Yeah. 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 So do you have any memories from this? You know, I can remember like vaguely, just vague memories of like it, it being on HBO, for instance. And anytime it's on TV, I'm going to watch it. Right. And um, I, we might have had, I know we didn't have the VHS. We may have had a DVD of it. But yeah, any I just remembering anytime it's on, I would watch it. And to your point earlier, like I can remember being young-ish because I would have been living at home and it would have been like pre-high school watching this movie. Yeah. Enjoyed it. So mine is definitely from Sleepovers. And we would just jump up and imitate the last scene and oh. just sing it at the top oh of God, our lungs. Oh, God, that sounds like a nightmare. I'm like, again, I'm Annie. That sounds yeah. like my nightmare. Yeah. I would get the most out of it, like, cathartically, but I would be miserable the entire time. I don't know. You don't drop your guard in front of just your girlfriends? Not like that. No, I don't sing in front of very many people. Can you imagine? People. And they're like, and take your pants off. <laughs> just all your worst nightmares <laughs> happening. We're sleeping nude tonight. Yeah, I know that would be weird. But you don't owe me, like, if that song comes on to this day, I think our friends still lose their minds. And we just kind of look at each other and we know, you know? Yeah. And there's something about that. And I do think that this movie does such a nice job of capturing friendship and all its little nuances, you know? 
Uh, speaking of that being a thing that I like, um, would you like to talk about things that you liked about the movie on rewatch? That was my number one thing I liked is that song, that whole scene at the end. I also like the scene sort of toward the last um, half of the movie where they, they're like in their candlelit circle and they start singing it and Annie just like loses it and goes crazy. I can identify with that. Um, incidentally, you should know. Taylor Swift used You Don't Own Me as the marker song for the start of the Eras tour. So if you were anywhere in the stadium and you heard You Don't Own Me, mm-hmm. you knew to make it back to your seat because her tour, and I guess now still, her concert's about to start. That was the cue. Oh, really? So I hear it, and I think it is a movie. Wow, okay. And it's just a empowering song. I wonder if she's a fan. Maybe. It's, it's a, I think she's a real big fan of owning her own music. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting um, because I do think, like, I I guess Jennifer Lawrence referenced it in a, in a speech where she oh. won the Oscar and she said, hey, look, it's got, it's Meryl, <laughs> you know, whatever. And people got mad at her, not oh. realizing that she was referencing, she was referencing First Wives Club. Yeah, and she's I think it was born in, like, 1990 or something. So, I mean, she was a real baby when this came out. Um Good yeah it's a goodie so for me my very first like is the chemistry between han and midler and keaton is just perfect mm-hmm. um they play well off of one another they have a natural intimacy with one another and even the tension between them feels reflective of real friendships particularly if they've been on pause for many years because mm-hmm. there is tension in friendships because normally we're like we're not unlike dogs, you know. There's always <laughs> Tell like me some, more. <laughs> there's always someone trying to run the pack, it feels like. And mm. so I do feel like that was something that this movie gets that I don't always see. Um in like played out so perfectly. So that was um my number one and then I'd already sort of alluded to this, but I'll go ahead and jump into the friendship aspect because I think it tags in well to their chemistry. I just think the friendship here that focus like so strongly on it. And I mean, it is on revenge and it is, there is obviously the, the um, men aspect of it, but it is about the bond between women. And it is in a way to me that also feels really synonymous with still Magnolias. Mm. And what I mean by that is that it sparkles in these little big moments. So whether it's the, they haven't seen each other in 20 years or something, but like the second Brenda says something that's so Brenda, they just pass these knowing glances at one another or when it's been a while and you need cocktails to kind of warm up again to one another. And I loved how you even, and it's funny you said the thing about the archetypes because I love how the orders on the cocktails told you everything you needed mm-hmm. to know about everybody. Annie's getting a virgin cocktail, a Bloody Mary. Brenda's getting a regular Bloody Mary. And Elise is getting vodka rocks. Mm-hmm. It's everything you need to know right there. And um, you mentioned the part where they start singing with that first celebratory mm-hmm. night or whatever. And they let Annie go on her own. That is a super friendship thing right there. Yeah. You just kind of let somebody smack themselves in the face a little bit, and then you all laugh at them. And everybody gets a turn. It's just part of, <laughs> it's part of like the natural hazing of friendship. Yay, girls. <laughs> and then um, I, I mentioned that tension between them before. It just happens when you bring together these different personalities. And then, look, a healthy percentage of your friendship is dancing together. 
in your friendships. Well, you just listen to this next thing. If you and your closest friends haven't had a dance party, turn this off now and go take care of that. You've been to a Taylor Swift dance party in public. So I think you're good. You have to stay. Tell me about some of the things that you like the most. I think you hit on one of my other big bullets was going to be about favorite quotes. Every single one you mentioned. I mean, this is just such a quotable movie. It is so perfectly written. I also had a couple of favorite scenes. One of the ones you just said, like um, the movie kind of sparkles in certain times. I did two watches. I only watched twice. On my second watch, I caught the part where they have the big blow up fight in Elise's apartment where they accuse her of being an alcoholic, specifically Brenda does. Mm -hmm. And they have this massive fight. Everything falls apart. And then, um, at Brenda's apartment, she's eating something, which is very like, it, it makes it very clear they all go back to their vices to deal with this huge gap in their lives. And hers was eating. Mm-hmm. So she's eating something and someone rings the doorbell and she puts it down and goes and it's Elise standing there and she pulls her sunglasses off and her eyes are puffy. And she says, I don't want to be like Cynthia. Yeah. I don't know that scene has ever resonated with me the same way that the body language, there's not even script there to explain what makes that scene so beautifully done. Like Goldie Hawn's face and then Brenda just taking her into a big hug because when there are no words, what do you do? You just hug someone and make them feel okay. I don't know that scene has ever resonated with me the way it did on my most recent watch. And I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, it was, um, well, it was very speaking, I think, to Goldie Hawn, right? Like, all you need is a look. It's so easy to take her for granted as, like, a funny, goofy character who's, you know, also obviously beautiful. But there is so much more there based on even just, like, tiny little glimpses throughout this movie. She goes from playing a raging alcoholic to a very strategic, calculated, strong woman to a really good friend. And you see all of that play out. Um, Maggie Smith's scene with Sarah Jessica Parker is, like, (laughs) top-notch comedy it's so good that was she's so annoyed amazing for that was so good (laughs) everything unspoken in her face it was glorious it was just glorious the way she holds like the business card just out of reach reach. and then the last one I wanted to mention was just every one of Diane Keaton's over-the-top reactions during the scene at Morty's apartment just like if you're watching her that entire time she's losing her freaking (laughs) mind just like I don't even in know a very Diane Keaton way. I I filming that. I should have like taken it, like paused it right then, because I'm pretty sure I saw someone almost break for a second, like a flicker of a smile, because it is so ridiculous. And I'm I'm genuinely certain Diane Keaton is the only person who can play that level of high strung and panicky in that voice. Yeah, it's just, that and is you're not character. annoyed. I wasn't. Yeah. No, no me neither. She's glorious. I know. I love it. <laughs> but I so think glorious. anybody else, I'm annoyed. Yeah. But her, she just. So panicky. It. And it was perfect to the character and everything. So those were the things I liked in this rewatch. Well, so that, um, I did have like these, instead of just the little sparkly moments, I think this kind of all tag in well with what you're saying. So that entire scene is just magic to me. Really I mean, them escaping on that scaffolding, the physical comedy of that. You know, the part where the person, the two couple, the couple's in bed and yes. they're like, Elise, you look so good. She goes, you look ah! great. And then they fall down. <laughs> it's so good. It's really funny. Um, and I also really enjoyed the auction scene. Yeah. Auctions are just fun anyway. Yeah. But the trickery behind it and everything's just nice and fast paced. 
Um, I love every scene from the time you mentioned this already, but Elise hits Brenda's doorstep to apologize mm-hmm. through the very last frame of the uh, movie is just for me, it is chef's kiss. You've got the Operation Hell's Fury where they take on each of the husbands. Like I said, I could poke some holes in the logic there, but if you just sit back and enjoy the ride, yeah. then the way they thread those plans together, it's enjoyable. So good. Assembling all the husbands, you oh, know, uh-huh. like their kids. Yeah. Like they've misbehaved because haven't they? You know, and then the needle drop of sisters are doing it for themselves with the montage sequence. I learned this season that you don't love a montage, (laughs) but I think that that was a really smart way of taking care of what I understand. It was a very long script that needed some editing. Uh So that was, I thought, a good way and kind of interweaving those different pieces of the exes paying up. And then we get to see that all the things that we've learned across the movie that that our leading ladies are struggling with, they're solving them. Mm-hmm. Are we solving it a little quickly? Of course we are. It's 1996, but it's happening very beautifully. Uh, and then the closing dance sequence. I mean, there's just nothing like it. It's all time. I did read that critics, some of them thought it read as hokey. My answer Don't to care. that is pish. Pish posh. You have Bette Midler in your movie. Yeah. You let that lady sing. That yeah. was, uh, one of the more interesting, um, like, sound editing things I've seen. Because you can definitely tell that they had to go back in and drop over uh, voice over them. Probably lip syncing. Oh, okay. Okay. It's, I didn't, it's pretty obvious. I didn't pay that much attention. Um, I just, you, I think I just assume in those scenes they they're always lip syncing. Yeah, so I don't yeah. really pay much attention anymore. My guess is, is like once we entered the high def era, yeah. it's things that you couldn't see then, but now it's just, it's just super a obvious. Off. Yeah. 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 Uh, was that it on things you liked? All right. I've got just a handful more of lines. <laughs> okay. Okay. When they're at the funeral and, um, a, a Duar- what's it, the decorator's name? Duarto. Duarto. He says, you don't know what Gil is feeling right now. And it cuts to Gil oh. and he's feeling on Heather Locklear. Oh my gosh, that was so gross. I like the bye-bye love, hello Pop-Tarts line. Um, that one's a really big one for people. Because oh, really? I think it just resonates so much with so many people. Yeah, I mean. Everybody loves Pop-Tarts. Who, yeah, come on, Pop-Tarts, man. When Annie sees Morty's girlfriend, Shelly, at Brenda's son's bat mitzvah, and she asks, is she a gift? <laughs> and then Brenda and Elisa's reaction to Annie saying that she separated at that first lunch. Oh. Their laughter. Is, oh. Was it a mean friend move? Yes. Yeah. That wasn't appropriate. But in terms of just nice, pure comedy, oh, it was good. It was good. That was the end of the line for me, I promise. <laughs> I want you to revel in it, Selena. I, I want you to enjoy it so it much. I told you I love it. Well, now we got to talk about things you didn't love. Okay, we can do it. What did? What was one of your things? Uh, so I'm going to start off with something that's a little, like, ease our way in. Okay. okay. Uh, you may have to lead us through this because I only have, like, two things. Oh, okay. Um, we'll have three. Okay. So Morty and Shelly's penthouse, for me, was ick personified. Oh. It's just the Vatican fountain in the foyer. Um, in the foyer. Me, the foyer. <laughs> that peach canopy over their bed. That Bette Midler loses her mind over. I was like, you keep that. Yeah. I'm sure it was very beautiful in 1996. I thought the stairs were weird. 
<laughs> so of that time. Although you see that in some of the modern kind of whatever. Not for me. It looks like she said, like she was getting nauseous or whatever. Yeah, it's right. not practical. Which is gold and gaudy, yeah. everything. And I even saw a glimpse of a gold toilet at one point, And you're just like, okay. <laughs> So that was um, that was my easy one. I, I also feel like it starts to sag a little towards the middle to the end. Like after the auction and up through where they make up, I just, I it like loses steam a little bit. Mm-hmm. When the pace picks up, like they end it really well. Mm-hmm. What was yours? Well, I, I mean, I think that's adjacent to what I would say is there was... Um, <laughs> There were like multiple montage moments. I would consider montage moments. So after they have the big fight, they're all sort of walking very sadly with their heads down in different mm-hmm. places. Uh, it was a little long. Yeah. Like I know they needed to show how um, sad they all were, right. but it was very long and also somehow still felt like it was intended to be the same night or something. Like the timing felt weird to me. Again, I try not to overthink it because I also think there were holes in this movie. But that that the second time I watched it, I realized oh, that's part I could have gone without. Yeah. Or like done it in a different way. I don't know. I don't know how you convey how sad they were without showing that, but you can't give me so many montages. Yeah, it was it was it was really slow. Yeah. Um and and I kinda I remember thinking it's a Billy Porter song in the when they're all like sad. Mm-hmm. And it it's a great song. It didn't really feel like it fit into this movie. Mm-hmm. And so that also stood out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I think the older I get and the more I, more thousands of movies I've watched, middle feels like a rough spot for a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's an uncommon problem. Uh, and I just think that's, that's just such a shame. Yeah. Again, as long as you're in strong, I guess it's okay. And then I just, like, the big fight is really rough, I think. Uh, I mean, you don't ever really want to see people fight, but mostly it, it does get mean mm-hmm. between Elise and Brenda. They're ripping into one another about weight and plastic surgery. They're turning on Annie when she won't take a side. And, like, you know, they're hitting her right where it hurts because they know that she has trouble asserting herself. And then the scene, I have to say, especially where they all slap one another, though, I'm not saying this is a dislike necessarily. It's fine, but it was like maybe the worst version of Still Magnolias in the the funeral scene. Yeah. And I had never made that connection before until knowing that Robert Harling was behind both of these. Mm -hmm. I just, I see some symmetry there. I think it was a literal reality check for all of them. Yes. The slap was intended to represent that. If we could like not get to that point though. If you might just want to like, Diffuse I told sooner. you, we need a code word, and I'm more okay with that. I, I don't know. I think if you've just never slapped your slap. friend, then... It's like mm. a dance party. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say, I didn't actually write this down, but I just, because I thought it we'd cover it in cast, but I yeah. cannot move past it. Sure. I used to love Seventh Heaven. I used to love Stephen Collins. Uh-huh. I cannot watch that man anymore. Mm. I just... Seeing him on screen was disgusting to me. I just cannot look at him anymore. And so then to see him on screen one, I was like, ugh, ick factor. Then when he did to Annie and then gaslit her, it was also hard for me to watch. Yeah. I just didn't like that. Yeah, that part hasn't aged well. No. Um, and, I, you know, if you guys don't know what that is, we don't have to go into it. I actually did have that in the controversies, which we'll cover in our next episode. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really want to talk about it anyway. So if you feel like you must know... 
Just go Google it. Yeah. Um, but let's just say Hollywood showed him the door even before Me Too struck up. Mm-hmm. So it's rough. there's that. Um, do we want to talk a little movie trivia? Let's do it. A little background. So I've rounded up some interesting background trivia, and then um, uh, also I think you may have uh, dug up some things as well. So. I have some things about the person who wrote the book. Okay, perfect. Well, why don't we, do you want to start there? Does that make sense as Mm -hmm. a framing? So you mentioned at the top of the episode that this was based on a book. It was a 1992 book by Olivia Goldsmith. Um, So you also mentioned she died January 15th, 2024. uh, Nope, 2004. Um, So not terribly, not terribly long after this movie was made. Mm -hmm. Um, She died of a heart attack induced by cosmetic surgery. Um, and incidentally, she had a cameo in the movie. Mm-hmm. Do you know who she was? Only because I saw about the cameo. Okay. So we'll get into it in the next episode. We go, there's like 12 cameos, so we can talk about it. Okay. Who is she? Oh, okay. So at the funeral scene, um, she, I think has short, dark hair and it's real quick. At like, Cynthia's funeral. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when the ex-husband is coming down the, yep. with Heather Locklear, uh-huh. she like looks over like, and notices them coming down the okay. aisle. It is so brief, okay. but she has real, real dark hair and I'm almost sure that's her. So she was fascinating. I think the very short version of her like life is that she, um, claims first wife clubs kind of mirrors her life so she said she met a higher high-powered man she married him he cheated and then divorced her and took her jaguar for what it's worth he says that's not true he says basically like he was a guy who was in retail and that wasn't fancy enough for her so she left him and maybe took some of his money I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, She also really struggled with aging and body image. She described herself as mousy. She told about how she posed for her first publicity photos, wearing spike heels and a blonde wig, um, which she says was a dig at her editors and publishers who were, quote, disappointed in her appearance. They thought she just was kind of bland looking and would never sell books. So she fancied herself up just to show them. Um, Like I said, she also died after cosmetic surgery, it sounds very sad, like an anesthesia situation gone wrong. Uh, Her friends and her, like, she wasn't terribly close with her family, but her friends were, like, devastated by it, and they said it was all the hospital's fault. I think her estate ended up suing the hospital. This was a hospital with, like, kind of a sketchy record anyway, so um, that was really sad. And then, while a lot of people are inclined to say her novels all center around the theme of revenge, she said that's not true. It's more about betrayal and then justice, which was very important to her. It was important that her characters always get a sense of justice at the end of the books. Mm -hmm. But if you read, like, the list of her books and then read their summaries... They're all justice books. They're very First Wives Club-y. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, First Wives Club was rejected 27 times as a book before it was published. Uh, we talked about how it was co-written by Robert Harling, who co-wrote Steel Magnolias. I think she was a, I think she was a co-writer on it. Uh-huh. Um, and you mentioned how much money it made. So those were the things I wanted to mention. Okay. Yeah, that's... Um that's really sad, especially like all the things that kind of tie in with the Elise character and everything. It's just, yeah. I, I mean, I th- there is definitely something. I can't believe just how much it comes up in everything that we talk about and everything we do, how much women put themselves 
through to fit some mold of something we never chose. Can I just say again, go watch the Barbie movie. I They'd speak to that. Yeah. Um, I'll include in the show notes, I think I included a link to her obituary, which was really more of a profile. And they interviewed some of her friends. And a couple of the themes that sort of just kept coming up were her feelings about her appearance. And so each of these three women in the First Wives Club was an archetype, as she says. But I feel like each of them in some ways has a piece of her personality. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Yeah. And I do think that has, it feels worth saying that has a tie-in to designing women or sex in the city or you name an ensemble, golden girls. All of these things are very archetype. And then you can kind of take that and feel like, um, you know, I know a lot of times we'll be like, I'm a Samantha or I'm a this or I'm a that. And the truth is, is that most of the time we're a little bit of all of those. She also, I think, was a little bit polarizing. Like, um, she had some very passionate friends. She had some other friends, though. They they noted a couple of times how she was quick to drop friends. I think whenever she felt like they were kind of holding her accountable or making her feel uncomfortable, she was quick to drop people. Um, one of her, early, I think, one of her early publishers, something happened. There was some sort of fallout. He was really kind of mean to her and said she was sort of like a mediocre writer who just got really lucky with this one story. And so she never actually found the same success. So again, like the parallels of the Elise character, she never had a chance to redeem herself the way Elise kind of does in the movie, I think. A lot of her novels never sold as well as what she made off of the rights to this movie. Um, but she had other friends who said she was very generous in giving with her money. So she was complex, I think is the bottom line. Well, you know what? A lot of people don't get lucky one time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I think I would be really happy to get lucky once. She seemed to do all right. Yeah. She seemed to do okay. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and jump into some of the um, other trivia for the movie. Thank you for sharing that and looking sure. that up. Um, so it was a surprise hit. We sort of circled on that already. But not only because it did better than expected, but because they were actually bracing for a flop. The script had, had issues. It had a lot of fingerprints on it. It was very long, which I alluded to, which why I thought maybe the montage at the end might have helped. In fact, if I had to guess... Um, Oh, no, this isn't a guess. The movie also went through really extensive edits. And when it first screened, it didn't screen well at all. Mm. I think maybe they wound up doing some more editing after that first screen. But it wasn't even screening well with women. Even the women were like, uh, well, we're glad you're trying this, but I didn't really like it. Uh-oh. <laughs> so the studio had a lot of heartburn, as we've discussed, about the sex and the age of its lead cast. It was famously shot on location in New York City. This is something that just doesn't happen a lot anymore. And Joan Rivers was among the annoyed New Yorkers. In fact, I think she went out and scolded the director, Hugh Wilson. Uh Like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And it was like, kind of kidding, but kind of not. I'm pretty sure he said he was hiding from Bette Midler. (laughs) Producer Scott Rudin wrote the final script, but according to Wilson, demanded his name not be in the credits because he was so confident in the movie. Um, Jon Stewart was cut from the movie entirely. He was Goldie Hawn's younger boyfriend. He gets referenced towards the end. Oh. But he was like in 45 minutes of it. That's how oh. much got cut. Oh, my gosh. So not because he wasn't good, but because, again, the movie was so freaking long, they were looking for ways to edit it down. Mm. He didn't make the cut. That amazing musical number at the end happened because 
the movie had no ending. Mm. They wound up using the very last take, which is why the sun, you can see it kind of breaking in the background. Goldie Hawn was apparently coming down with the flu at the time. Bette Midler broke two hills. It was was all very dramatic. dramatic. Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, and Diane Keaton. Sorry, guys, I gave this away earlier. But they were all born within 45 days of each other, and they celebrated their 50th birthdays together while filming the movie. That's nice. That's like... It's really kind of amazing. Like what the odds are of that. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about like iconic, iconic. And I don't know if it's just because like more women have come into Hollywood as time has gone on Mm. and it was harder to get through the door. Mm. Um, I'm not saying it's easy now, but it was harder. And maybe that's why they were so close in proximity. But Mm. there, I can't think of necessarily three icon, like that kind of level icons who were like born the same year even. Mm. So the Oscar Brenda picks up at Elisa's house mm-hmm. was a real Oscar belonging to Goldie Hawn that she won for Best Supporting Actress in Cactus Flower in 1970. Oh, good for her. Yeah. Um, I, that was totally new movie trivia on me, and that just goes to show you never stop learning. And then just for funsies, okay, in 2020, if you just can't get enough, First Wives Club, and Mm -hmm. you've watched it 500 times, and like, now what? (laughs) In 2020, Midler, Hahn, and Keaton all signed on to star together in a comedy called Family Jewels. The script revolves around three women who were all once married to the same man. Then it's like the aftermath because he passes away, and somehow they all get smushed together at some sort of like holiday Sounds wacky. That was 2020. I haven't seen anything else on it. Uh, Yeah, hopefully it doesn't get killed completely. Um... We're in a rough time right now. I would say I shouldn't say we. I'm not in it, but I don't Entertainment. know when the next things are going to get made. Yeah. So fingers crossed. But it would be amazing to see those three starring in something again together. If you don't already know, there's an all black cast TV show of the same name on BET starring Jill Scott. I think the fourth season is set to come out later this year. Again, it's difficult times, so I don't know that for sure. But that's what. Things we're alluding to online. There's also an impersonation of the iconic dance scene at the end of the movie that went viral on social media a few years ago. It's quite delightful. So we'll drop that into a blog post for your viewing pleasure. But it's basically like one person who does every single character. Oh. Um, and it is it's lovely. Yeah, it's it's really, really good. All right, that's all for Can my I say one trivia. more thing? Oh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I tried to find this book. I was going to read this book before we oh, filmed wow. or before we recorded. I can't find it anywhere. I can't find it at the library. I had trouble. I don't think I was able to find it on Amazon for anything other than like a ridiculous price for yeah. an yeah, old book. No offense. Yeah. Um, but in all that research, I was reminded, and I cannot remember if this is how this came up such that we wanted to cover it here, but I wanted okay. to remind folks that there was a play, like a musical in the mid 2010s. So about 2015, mm-hmm. there was a musical. And as part of that, a new version of the book, like an updated version of the book was written by LBT. Oh, I feel like we talked about that maybe in my LBT segment. Is that my segment, your segment? It was yours. Yeah. I think maybe I mentioned that. So maybe the look you're giving me makes me feel like, no, maybe we didn't touch on that or register that. But she wrote the the book that accompanies the play. What? Yeah. Yeah. So it it all comes. Come on, LBT. Send it to us. Yeah. And talk to us about it. Covering your show all the time. (laughs) 
A one Stop for, it. A one for one, if you will. <laughs> Stop it. Are we ready to go to references? I'm ready if you are. So we're going to do, um, like we normally do for our main show, we're going to do 90s. We're going to broaden it up to just outdated or dusty references. If there are any Southern references, um, and then if there's anything we feel like in terms of references we need to talk about. So uh, for 90s or outdated references? Yeah, so I feel like over the course of the movie, we get like all these things that are so very... 90s and dusty at this point so we get a walkman we get pictures in a wallet a cell phone the size of zach morris's a business card taxi cabs writing checks like all the classics are playing you know Mm -hmm. um and then we get peak heather locklear that felt very it felt like the exact casting selection they would have made at that time yeah um probably i think we're still in the melrose place era Mm -hmm. at that time so it's a very sensible choice Mm -hmm. Um, what did you have? All the plastic surgery bits. Oh, Just yeah, yeah. like all of it felt sure. really 90s and really Hollywood. Um, Elise smoking in a restaurant and pretty much everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> that was really 90s. Elise climbing on the stair climber was uh-huh. super 90s. Uh, Bette Midler's son says, look, mom, get real. We've talked in Designing Women this whole like, get real. Come on, man. It's the 90s. There's just stuff like that. And then the entire lesbian subplot for Annie's daughter, it just, it obviously felt dusty. I don't know that we would get that. It certainly would not have the same payoff, I feel like, in the current environment that in 1996 it had. Like that favorite line you had, I don't think would have the same resonance today. No, I think that's right. Uh, You know, I think, so the thing about the 90s definitely came up for me. I just like, I don't know how you explain to someone who didn't grow up then what a big deal that was how that just kept coming up over and over everybody it's the 90s, it's the 90s, man. It. It's the 90s. <laughs> like everybody said it. and i it's so funny to watch this movie because it's really a time stamp in that way yes. because they say it a good bit in this movie yeah yeah in designing women though we've also heard come on man it's the 80s it's mm-hmm. the 90s so i think just every decade we're like now come on it's 2023 get with it that's right it does get harder to say the 2020s yeah it's the 2020s like you it's don't eventually we're gonna say 23 it's 23 come on man i'm bringing it back it's the two and the three the attitudes um about fascination with the same topics those came up with me too about plastic surgery and stuff but i wanted what i wanted to tag into that too was that that feels also much like this it's the 80s or it's the 90s that felt like hearkening back to designing women Mm. um so i mean it's not i guess it's not out of the ordinary since they're not that far apart so when this movie air like came out would have been four years after Designing Women went off. Mm. It's hard to kind of think of them in the same universe, but it's a good reminder they very much so are. Mm-hmm. Um, Shelly and Ganilla Garson Goldberg's Fur Coats. Is, it's such a good name. It's a really good name. Mission Impossible gets a call out. Oh, yeah. Uh, but what I actually wanted to say is it's not that dusty of a reference. <laughs> oh. Given that the seventh one just dropped. Well, it's his 90s references too, so you're right there. Well, they are referencing the very first one. Oh. So, and that's all that existed then. And then you mentioned earlier the montage where they're all sad. Yeah. There's also the like the answering machine montage. <laughs> oh, I liked that one. Oh, I didn't dislike it. Yeah. But that's not how we would get in touch with one another. That. That scene wouldn't happen today. It would be a group text. It'd be a group text for sure. Yeah. Uh, Guns and Roses. Mm. 
So who Guns and Roses? It's like the way she delivers it is so, so Bet Midler. It's so good. And then the way Elise tracked down the truth about Bill's underage girlfriend, oh. aka Jesse Spano, <laughs> um, like her physical yearbook, that all was like that's not going to happen today. They, I mean, the situation would yeah. for sure, yeah. but they'd find out a different way. Yeah. Southern references. I only have two things. I only have one. Okay, what's yours? The Vampire Lestat and Louis. Oh, that's a good call out. That's what Bette Midler calls her, or would call Cynthia's husband and his new wife. That's a reference to Anne Rice's interview with a vampire, which is based, um, it sounds like at least in the beginning in Louisiana. That's right. That's a fantastic catch. Yeah. Um, Thanks. That's the only one I had. Mine is, um, I think the Southern reference is two Southerners covering a New York City movie in a podcast. Oh, oh gosh. (laughs) But you know what? After we were talking about Annie's mom earlier, I think it's worth mentioning there's a couple of times where she just is really giving off some strong, old school Southern mom energy. Southern mom vibes, yeah. Yeah. I think there's not a far removal from Southern mom vibes and high society New York vibes. Like there's a... A through line. You rely on a man. Yeah. Man carries you through. Right. A little bit of I a, set out a path for you. Exactly. Do it or I'll kill you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, and I say I yes, you. ma'am, while we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. So something to be said for that. I stand in my reference. Oh, okay. Uh, and then for references we need to talk about, we agreed before we started recording that we don't have any. That's right. Uh, but we're going to talk about casting controversies in Extra Sugar. So That's you can right. consider this your references you need to talk about this being extra sugar or the second episode we're doing this week. However you want to word it. Love it. So we'd love everyone to follow along with us and engage. Is that really all we have to say about it? I want to make sure you've been through everything. Okay. I I gave like 18,000 lines from the movie. Perfect. Okay. Instagram and Facebook at Sweet Tea and TV. TikTok at Sweet Tea TV Pod. We're on YouTube. Just search Sweet. I can't bring myself to do it. Just search Sweet Tea and TV Podcast. You can find us in Metro Atlanta. (laughs) Selena's address is uh, email sweetttvpod at gmail.com and our website is www.sweetttv.com. Did you see my brain just turn off in the middle of that? I sometimes power all the way down. So, oh my gosh. No judgment. For I me. feel like I just restarted. Um, and then, you know, from the website, you can find other ways to support the show. Uh, we'd also love if folks could rate and review us wherever they listen. And then um, for season five this year, we're going to do something a little different. We're going, and we talked about this in um, the finale finale, we're going to re-air some of our favorite episodes each week from all of the Sweet Tea and TV archive. Doesn't that sound nice? It does. From the archive. Um, So want to mention that and just remind you that you'll still have the same posting or listening cadence Mondays and Thursdays, but they'll just be old episodes for you to refresh your memory on. Mm -hmm. And then starting in October, it's going to be season five. So thanks for listening. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Uh, You know what that means, Nikki. What does it mean, Selena? It means Selena, Mr. Q again. And we'll see you around the bend. Bye.